We're going to carry on this morning on our uh, on our series, and um, we've been. This is the the fourth in the uh, the message that we have done over over the last few weeks. But before I do, I've just been remi- I've just looked down and I've just been reminded of something I forgot to tell you about. So please excuse me. Um, John gave me these uh, these leaflets which we hadn't got last week. Uh, when you those who took shoe boxes, and it's how to pack a shoe box, and there's a little envelope to put the the donation in when you uh, when you actually send the shoe box. So uh, if you'd like to see John at the end of the service today. Uh, then, uh, then you can take one of those leaflets with you, uh, with your shoebox. So going back to the the series, what we are talking about, we've we, we've been talking about following Jesus, and the first the first uh, message was what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to be a, a true follower of Jesus, not just someone who is on the periphery. Not just someone who is a spectator, but someone who is really involved. And someone who really is really serious about following Jesus and obeying his commands. And I just want to recap for a little while this morning on how far we've got. We've, we've spoke about uh, following Jesus means self-denial. It means putting him first. It means putting his word first above what we think ourselves. We said that, um, we said that following Jesus is a lifetime commitment. It's not just something, it's not just a passing phase. It's a lifetime commitment. We offer our lives to the Lord. And we are serious about following him. And that is reflected in many areas of our life. In fact, it's reflected in every single area of our lives. It's reflected in the people who we have association with. It's reflected in um, it's reflected in the friends that we make. You see, if you if you spend a lot of time with people who are miserable and complaining and moaning all the time, then the chances are that that will rub off on you. You'll start complaining, complaining about the government. You know, I mean, Easton mentioned about the government. He mentioned about politics earlier on, and, you know, he left it at that, and I think I'll leave it at that as well. <laughs> because there's so much we could say, but, uh, you know, it's not going to make us feel any better, is it? But if you spend time with people who are discontented, find something to moan about, and very soon that will rub off on you. But the goal should be to choose godly friends who share our faith. Those who share our faith. Why? Because we need to be built up, don't we? We need to be built up in the faith. I need need other Christians. And I'm sure you do as well. People who will encourage you. People who will help you. People who will stand alongside you. In the Christian walk. 
that is so important. And then another characteristic of following Jesus is generosity. We become generous in our outlook. Generous to other people. Generous to the church. Now you probably noticed that we as a church, we, you know, we don't, we, we very, uh, it's, it's not very often that you hear us talk about money. That's something that we, 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 we don't do. But you'll notice that at the back there's a couple of boxes that says the Lord's portion. The Lord's portion. And that means that, uh, that when we want to make a, com a contribution to the Lord's work, then we drop it in the box. But generosity is something that is characteristic of the true follower of Jesus. Last, uh, the, the week before last, we looked at uh, servanthood. To become a servant is what is required of us. Jesus says that, uh, that the, the greatest of all will be the servant of all. So, you know, and then that sort of turned on the head. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, it turned the thinking on its head because people were uh, people were striving for position and power. But Jesus said, "You've got to become a servant." And when we follow Jesus, then we become servants. We become His servants. We looked at that um, parable about the unforgiving servant, about the servant who the king he owed the king many, many. Uh, well, it was, we'll say, we'll say thousands of pounds. But then, and he was forgiven his debt. He was forgiven the whole debt. It was completely wiped out, that debt was. The slate was wiped clean. But the servant went out and he, he and, and he, there was a fellow servant who owed, who owed him some money as well. But by comparison, it was a very small amount. And it says that he, he had this servant thrown into prison until he could pay the whole debt. And Jesus said, you've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. We talked about forgiveness. And forgiveness is something that we need to practice. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Jesus said that um, it was important for us to forgive others if we wanted to be forgiven. Now, it's okay. We, we, we know that we, uh, we're, we're forgiven by God. He has forgiven all our sins. All our sins have been forgiven. And when we came to him, before we became Christians, all those sins that we committed in our life, the slate was wiped clean. But that doesn't mean to say that we're never going to sin again. That doesn't mean to say that we're, we're never going to slip or fall. And because we do, it's important that when we, when we come to God and we confess our sins, and of course, I said about the communion service, a good opportunity to keep a short account with God. Every week we break bread together. And the Bible says that we should examine our own hearts to see if there's anything that we need to confess before we take of those emblems. 
And Jesus said, if you want your father to forgive you your trespasses, if you want your sins forgiven, then you must forgive those who sin against you. If you remember, Peter asked the question. He said, how many times do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 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 no not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, as many times as it takes. So for every, every time that someone sins against you, that is how many times you have to forgive. It's as simple as that. And Jesus said that we need to forgive because if we want to have our own sins forgiven, we must forgive. Now, I want you to get me right here. That doesn't mean to say we lose our salvation. But what happens is it affects our relationship with God. It affects our walk with the Lord because the accumulation of unforgiven sin is there in our lives. And as long as we hang on to unforgiveness towards someone else, then the accumulation continues. And so we need to be careful in that area. And so what we are looking at today, you know, there are many benefits of following Jesus. You see, we might say, well, you need to do this. I mean, we, we've already said that Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. So that's a test of whether or not we love the Lord or not. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And we need to find out what his commandments are. We need to read them on a regular basis. And we need to put them into practice. We need to, we need to obey. Obedience is so important. Now, one of the... One of the benefits of being a true follower of Jesus Christ is the joy that, you get, that he gives you. First of all, there's the joy of knowing that your sins have been forgiven. And that's, you know, that's a real joy, isn't it? And we're going to be looking at joy this morning. The joy that our sins are forgiven. That God has decided to wipe the slate clean. And all the sins that we committed... And all the sins that we commit, and all the sins that we will commit, they've all been forgiven. We have been forgiven by God himself. And we know that joy in our hearts of sins forgiven. And I want to read a passage of scripture to you from the first uh, epistle of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first nine verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I like that verse, that, uh, that verse, when it says, in verse 8, it says, Although you do not see him, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible joy. In other words, it's a joy that you cannot put into words. It's a joy that you have to experience yourself to be able to appreciate it. Now, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is a good, it's good news. It's a message of good news that God sent his only begotten son into the world to die for your sin. He sent Jesus into this world and Jesus was willing to go to the cross for you. Why? Because he loved you. Because he loves you. God loves you so much that it's, it's hard even to put into words how much God loves you. And it's almost impossible to find the words to describe the love of God. But he loves you. He loves you so much. And that's why, but the Bible tells us that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that we needed a saviour. And that saviour was Jesus Christ, who God sent into the world. Who was born as a baby, grew up to be a man and was crucified on a cross. And he took the punishment for your sin and for my sin. And when we repent of our sin, and when we ask for forgiveness, then we receive Jesus as our own personal saviour, and God forgives us, and he grants us peace, and he gives us joy, and one day we shall be with him in heaven. But this joy that we're going to talk about this morning, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and not preach too long. A preacher once stated that Christians are nearer to Christ when they feel sorrow rather than joy. And to emphasize his point, he said, there is no evidence in Scripture that Jesus ever laughed. Although we are told in one place that Jesus wept. Personally, I don't agree with that concept of Jesus. I'm sure that he laughed 
And I'm sure that he was, he'd got a sense of humor. It's hard to believe that the one who created laughter never laughed himself. Now, Jesus got a lot to say about the joy that he's able to give. When you look at Galatians 5, you'll find that it's listed in the fruit of the Spirit. The second on the list, love, joy, peace. And that's something that we produce. Fruit is something that is produced. And as we live our lives to the close to the Lord, then we produce the fruit of joy. You see, Jesus talks about himself in John's Gospel, chapter 15. Jesus talks about himself as being the vine. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he says that you will bear fruit if you abide in me. That means if you stay close to Jesus and live your life according to his word, obey his commands, then you will produce fruit. And when someone becomes a Christian, the fruit is the evidence that there's been some growth. Now, if you plant a tree in the garden, hope, if you plant a fruit tree in your garden, the chances are that it will produce some fruit. If I plant a tree in my garden, it'll probably die. <laughs> but that's the way that's the way things are with me, you know. I've never I've never been a gardener, and, and even if we have a house plant, you know, you know, we, you know, over the years, we, you know, we haven't had much success with house plants. You know, come to our house, it's like giving it the kiss of death. <laughs> and so, just as a fruit tree will bear fruit. Jesus said that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And so a good tree, a tree that is, uh, a tree that is planted in the right place and in the right conditions, perhaps the right type of soil, will bear fruit. And it's the same in our Christian lives. And Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he said this, he says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you. So what's the secret of obtaining this joy? Abiding in the vine. Staying close to Jesus. Making sure that we're connected to him. Because what did he say? He said, without me, you can do nothing at all. And so we need to be connected to the vine. I have told you this so that you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So what is this joy? Well, this joy is much deeper than laughter. His joy completes our joy because it is richer and it is deeper and it is more lasting. And so the question is, do other people see the joy of Jesus in me? That's a challenge, isn't it? That's a challenge to every one of us, and I include myself in that challenge. The German philosopher Nietzsche said this. He said, Christians would have to look a lot more redeemed and joyful before I believe what they preach. Quite a statement, isn't it? 
And but Paul encourages us to rejoice in the Lord. You know, isn't it good to rejoice in the Lord? You know, and when we when we come together on a Sunday morning, we've got a lot to rejoice about, haven't we? Praise the Lord. We've got so much to rejoice about, so much to, to thank him for. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, it's all right when things are going well. But what about when they're not going so well? What about when you find your back up against the wall and things are not favorable for you? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. And so what we need to do is to find something to be thankful for. And we need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. You see, it's a common misunderstanding that concerning the Christian faith. That to receive it is to be made miserable. And although there is a cross at the heart of our faith, the central truth is that joy is the strength of the people of God. Joy is the strength of the people of God. A sign of Christian maturity. It shows that we're growing. You see, if a, if, a, if a child is born and that child doesn't develop physically, then you'd be worried about the child. And you'd probably take the child to the doctors and you'd, and you'd express your concern. And it's the same with a child of God. When we are born into God's family, when we come to Christ, when we acknowledge that we've sinned and that we need a saviour, and we receive his salvation. And then the natural thing is to grow in him. To grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a verse that's in the scripture that says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. So you may feel a little bit weak this morning. Is it because you have lost your joy? The Greek word is kara, which is C-H-A-R-A. And it's a strong, robust word. And it, it, it actually means, it doesn't just mean uh, joy, but it means exuberant joy. It means boisterous joy. It means we've got something to shout about. It means we've got something to be joyful about. In the New Testament, we're encouraged to rejoice over 70 times. And it's hard to imagine that this Christian faith should ever become associated with gloom and frowns. You know, there was in the, uh, in the 17th century, there were a group of people known as the Puritans. You may have heard of them. Uh, I know it's a long time ago, but they were, they were sincere people. And the Puritans, they, they sought to purify the, the Church of England. And although they were sincere people, they fostered a tradition of drabness. They even prohibited maypoles. And in 1664, they even abolished the celebration of Christmas. It caused such an uproar that they had to bring it back the following year. <laughs> You see, they believe that God frowned upon joyful exuberance and their outlook on life was serious and somber. 
not this rejoicing in the Lord. And being vocal about it and expressing our joy. That's what we, we need to do. I read of a woman who was taken to a large Christian meeting. And they, and they were praising the Lord. And they were singing. And for the first time she saw joyful crowds. And she commented, she made a comment, she said, that's, that's strange because I never associated Christianity with joy before. And she, she was so impressed that she went back to the church. And that's good, isn't it? You know, when people come into our church and they say that people are really joyful. You know, they've got something to sing about. They've got something to shout about. And they're joyful. And that's the kind of thing that, that is infectious and people, and people, something that they, that people want. This lady was so impressed that she went back to the church. And she became a Christian herself. You see, joy is different from happiness because happiness depends on happenings. And if the circumstances are good, if the circumstances are happy, then... They're the people are happy. But what about when they're not? What about the adverse circumstances? When that disappears, what happens then? Well, what happens that what what happens then with the true follower of Jesus is that the joy remains. The happiness disappears, but the joy remains. That even though you're going through a difficult time. And even though you're, you're having a struggle and you're going through a trial, the joy remains because it's not external, it's internal. You know, I can remember as a, as a young Christian, just after I became a Christian, that was a long, long time ago. And I can remember we used to sing a song. We used to sing a song. We used to call them choruses. I don't like the word choruses. They, they, they called them choruses. And we used, to have a, we used to have a book. And there was just choruses in them. And we used to, and we used to sing this song. And it, was, and it was, if you want joy, real joy. Remember it? I can see some of you nodding to say that you remember it as well. That means you're as old as me or maybe a bit older. <laughs> if you want joy, Real joy, wonderful joy, let Jesus come into your heart. I'm glad you remember it. Maybe we can sing that one. <laughs> and we used to sing about joy. And I can remember, you know, we used to, and there was quite a few songs about joy, you know, we used to sing joy. You know, there was another one called I've Got the Joy of Earls in My Soul. I can't remember the words now, that's, that's a long one. But, but we used to sing about joy. And another one was Jesus is the joy of living. Joy, we used to sing about the joy that we possess. Isaiah 35 and verse 10 says, Everlasting joy will crown their heads and gladness and joy will overtake them. You know, right from day one, right from the birth of the church, following the Spirit's descent at Pentecost, the observers, they thought the apostles were drunk. What's the matter with them? You know, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're happy. 
You know, the Spirit has been poured out upon them. And, you know, it made, it made a difference. And people took notice. And whenever a fresh wave of the Spirit flows through the church, the same exuberance and gladness that was present at Pentecost is manifested. The early Methodists had it. The early Salvationists and also the early Pentecostals. Joy was one of the main characteristics. The reading that we shared together in, um, in 1 Peter, I'll just read those, just a few verses of, of that reading again. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what he is, what, what he is saying here, you see, what had happened with these Christians, persecution had broke out and they were having to suffer trials. They were being persecuted for their faith. It wasn't easy for them at this particular time. And they were having to stand firm. And Peter was trying to encourage them. He was saying, look, okay, you're going through a hard time now. But remember that God has a place reserved for you in heaven. And he says, although you do not see him, you love him, even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, there are so many sad people in the world today, aren't there? People who are really struggling with even finances that are that we see all around, you know, the, the problems that people are having with the cost of living rises and all that kind of thing. And people are concerned. People are worried. And people are sad. We need, to, we need to tell people. We need to let people know that we've got a faith mm -hmm. that is strong and that it makes a difference in our lives. It's not just coming to church on a Sunday. We know that, don't we? It's not just coming to church. It's the other six days that's more important than, than coming together on a Sunday. It's easy, to, it's easy to share our faith with others who know the Lord. It's easy to, to talk with, with people who are already Christians. But when you go out into the world, then it becomes a little bit harder. And so, how do we lose that joy? You know, the joy that we find, you know, that... Um, you know, that wonderful joy that we experience when we realize that we have been saved and that God has forgiven us. Well, sometimes it can be sin in our lives. It can be a sin in our lives that we know about and we refuse to do anything about it. Remember David. David was the king of Israel. And David was tempted. One day he saw a woman taking a bath and he and he went. And instead of blasting the thought with prayer, he, he, he lingered. And he allowed that thought to, 
take root in his heart. And to cut a long story short, he ended up committing adultery. But not only did he commit murder, as he as he had the the the, the um the husband of Bathsheba, he arranged that he should go in the front line of battle and that he would be killed. Now this went on for a little while and then, you know, he tried to cover up his sin, but it didn't work. And then God sent the prophet Nathan to confront him with his sin and he realized he'd sinned. In Psalm 51, you can read his prayer of repentance. It is a genuine prayer because in that prayer, he said, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. He said, Lord, I, I, I've, I've sinned. He said, Lord, I've sinned in your sight. And one thing he did say towards the end of his prayer, he said, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. He'd lost the joy. Why? Because he had sinned and the sin had not been dealt with. We know that there was consequences. There were consequences. He had to pay the consequences. The child who was conceived was actually died. And there was problems in David's family as a result of his sin. But God forgave him. But he longed for the joy to be restored into his life. He longed, he experienced the joy of salvation. And he'd asked God to restore that joy. You see, joy is part of the Christian's armour. It's something that helps us to face life's trials and problems. How easy it is to become downcast. But our Lord's joy leaves us envious of no one. Instead of wanting what others have, the true follower of Jesus longs to share the treasure they have found in Jesus. We sang that the other week. Easton led us in a song about tell the world of the treasure you found. Verse in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, and verse 22. Let's read that verse to you. And we're almost through. <clears throat> John 16, verse 22. <clears throat> So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. No one will take away your joy. So the, so the joy that Jesus gives is a joy that no one else can give. It's also a joy that the world cannot take away. Joy is the result of a close relationship with Jesus. Now, if you haven't got a close relationship with Jesus, then the chances are that you won't experience this joy that he is talking about here. Because when we pass into the presence of the Lord, you see, nothing can take away this joy. Nothing can take it away. Because it's a joy that Jesus gives. 
not even death. Because when we pass into the presence of the Lord, we shall experience joys we've never experienced before. That's the hope of every Christian. Scripture says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Some of you may have heard of C.S. Lewis. I'm sure most of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. He, he was the one who wrote the book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and also the Chronicles of Narnia. And this is what he said. He said, the business of heaven is joy. Here, joy fills our beings. But there, talking about heaven, joy will satiate our beings. So it will be a different kind of joy. You see, joy makes our experiences on earth more tolerable. And the hope of more joy makes heaven more inviting. May God help us to be a joyful people. So others might see the difference in us. One more scripture. Isaiah 12 and verse 3. It says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. Remember the encounter that Jesus had with the woman of Samaria? And he sat by the well and talking about water. And he said to the, the woman, he said, if you drink of this water that comes from the well, he says, you'll thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst again. And that's the water that we are able to draw upon. And let me tell you, my friend, this morning that the well is deep. And let me tell you as well that the well will never, ever run dry. But you can draw upon his resources. You see, we don't have to live our Christian lives in our own strength. We never, it was never intended that we should be followers of Jesus in our own strength. Because he supplies all that we need. And friends, we need to draw from the well on a daily basis. Not just when we come to church. Oh, we get filled up when we come to church and then we're all right for the rest of the week. We'll manage now till next Sunday. No, 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 no. Nothing at all like that. But we draw from the well of salvation every single day. Seven days a week, we draw from the well. And that's when we find that joy. That's when we find, when we draw water from the wells of salvation. It's water that satisfies. And we experience the joy of the Lord. Let's bow our heads for a few moments, shall we, in God's presence. Now maybe this morning... God has spoken to you. Maybe you've lost the joy that you once had. You remember when you were joy. You remember when you first became a Christian and how, um, and how excited you were about God and about his word and about knowing Jesus.
somehow that situation has changed and you don't feel like you did before. Well, the good news is, friends, that your joy can be restored. Your joy can be restored. I'm Just tell the Lord about it quietly in your heart. He looks upon us this morning and he sees our hearts and he loves us and he longs for us to experience the best that he has. He longs for us to draw from the wells of salvation and to experience that real joy inexpressible, that inexpressible joy that Peter talks about in his epistle, that you might experience that inexpressible joy. And so just tell the Lord about it this morning as we are bowed in his presence. I'm going to pray. I'm going to include you in a prayer this morning for all those who know that they're not in that place where they're experiencing joy. The Christian life has become a bit of a, a bit of a drudgery, a bit of a struggle. You're having real difficulty with it and God wants, wants you to know that you don't need to continue in that situation because he's able to give you all that you need when you draw from the wells of his salvation. Father God, we want to thank you this morning that your joy is something that the world cannot give and the world cannot take away. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. Lord, if for those who have lost that joy, I pray that that joy will be restored. I pray, Lord, that there will be a new sense of your presence and a new sense of purpose in their lives. I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we look to you and as we confess our sin, we thank you, Lord, that you are able to restore the joy of our salvation. May we know that inexpressible joy in each one of our lives so that people will see and people will know that we belong to you and they will also have a desire to know you and to, and to have that joy that only you can give. We ask these prayers in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.